Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, February 6, 2022, and this is show number 874. Well, we're having some real good sausage getting made here during the live show. We are using StreamYard to stream the live video because of a problem introduced for Mimo Live with uh, macOS 12.2 only on the new M1s. So we're running beta software with Mimo Live, and they're working their little uh, programming fingers to the bone trying to get it fixed. But in the meantime, we're trying out uh, StreamYard, and it, I think it's working pretty well. I think we're going to be okay with this. Bart and I recorded an episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond that's kind of halfway between a light episode and a programming by stealth. It's kind of a story time episode about how Bart became a computer scientist, who had a big influence on him and how, and then a deeper dive into the fun he's had with solving Wordle the nerd way. I can't link to it today, though, because Bart used today's word in his Wordle explanation, so I don't want to spoil it for anybody. I'm going to post it on Monday, and there's a non-zero chance that I'll remember to link to it in the NoSilicast show notes blog post. You won't see the notes in your podcatcher for this episode because they're too fast and any changes I make don't get pushed to you. But in any case, the recording will be in both the Chit Chat Across the Pond light feed and the programming by Stealth feed when it comes out in your podcatcher of choice. Okay, let's get started with a review from Kurt Leibowitz, also known as PDX Kurt in the live chat room. This is a review of OpenCore on the 2010 Mac Pro computer. 2010 Mac Pro? Why would anyone be talking about a 2010-era computer, much less be using it in 2022? Let's see if I can come up with a car analogy. Okay, so my MacBook Air is kind of like a Mazda Miata. It's small and reasonably fast, doesn't cost an arm and a leg. A MacBook Pro might be analogous to a high-end German touring sedan, perhaps a BMW 740i. There's more power under the hood, more refinement in the features offered, and of course it costs more, sometimes a lot more. Then there's the iMac. The iMac is the Buick family sedan of the Mac ecosystem. Good functionality, reasonable pricing, but you don't take it out on the track to compete. Now the 2010 Mac Pro is like, well... There is no one vehicle that captures the spirit of the 2010 Mac Pro, also referred to as a classic Mac Pro. It can have the speed of a Porsche 911 Turbo, the raw power of a Mac truck, the carrying capacity of a 13-passenger Dodge van, the versatility of a, I don't know, maybe a VW Thing. For those who don't remember, the VW Thing was a close cousin of the VW Bug, and it had an ugly Jeep-like appearance that allowed you to strip its doors and windshield off if you wanted. In short, the 2010 Mac Pro is really the only affordable Mac in current use that allows you to customize it any way you like, since it was built as a standard platform utilizing standard PC parts like Intel processors, PC RAM, PCI Express cards, and SATA drives. Another crucial feature is the fact that it's also compatible with a wide range of PC GPU cards, from 2010-era NVIDIA cards to the latest AMD gaming monsters. I've customized my 2010 Mac Pro 
with several technologies that were not even on the drawing board at the time it came out, including a metal-compatible GPU, USB 3 ports, an NVMe boot drive, 48GB of RAM, Bluetooth 4.0, and more. Perhaps the most astonishing thing is that you can even add Thunderbolt 3 ports to a Mac Pro. I would also say that, similar to the automotive hobby world, the 2010 Mac Pro has a large, fanatical, never-say-die fan base, which is probably its most important asset. It's out of that community that OpenCore on Apple hardware was born. So, with that as an introduction, what is the problem to be solved, exactly? Well, as I'm sure we're all aware, all good things must eventually come to an end in the Apple world. Specifically, Apple obsoletes older hardware on a regular basis, and obsolete hardware stops getting updated software. For the classic Mac Pro, the last supported operating system was macOS 10.14, Mojave. And now, in early 2022, Mojave is no longer getting updates. How does one continue on with a Mac Pro 2010 and enjoy the fruit of Apple's latest, most secure, and feature-rich operating systems? This is where OpenCore comes in. At its heart, OpenCore for the Mac Pro is basically the same technology that was developed for the purpose of running macOS on non-Apple hardware, i.e., Hackintosh technology. Except, in the case of OpenCore for the Mac Pro, it is running on Apple hardware, which I think lowers some barriers. For one thing, you can never be completely locked out of your computer. In the worst case, you can always boot back into a copy of Mojave as a supported operating system and work on repairing your OpenCore installation from there in a familiar environment. Before explaining how OpenCore works, I'd like to spend just a moment explaining how OpenCore doesn't work so that you'll appreciate the elegance and durability of the OpenCore approach. Prior to OpenCore, various people developed patched installers. They took a stock Apple installer disk, added various drivers from prior versions of the OS, removed other software, and literally changed bytes to make the installer think that it was working with supported hardware. This was laborious, and the patched installer would be outdated when Apple issued updates. It also meant relying on drivers that were no longer getting updates, and there were other downsides as well. A different, better approach was called for. Parallel to this effort of keeping old Apple hardware alive with new versions of macOS, the Hackintosh community was developing their own solutions to run macOS on non-Apple hardware. At some point, someone in the community who goes by the moniker CDF realized that the right approach to the legacy hardware problem was to bring in the Hackintosh booting technology to solve the many shortcomings of patched solutions. The modern Apple, or PC for that matter, booting process is a multi-step affair with an early stage that enumerates the hardware for the final operating system to work with. The genius of OpenCore is that they created what I'll call a software shim that is inserted into the boot process. This shim modifies the data structures in RAM that get passed to the final operating system, and that can make the hardware appear to be 100% compatible 
with any given macOS release. In the case of a classic Mac Pro with a metal-compatible GPU card, it already is essentially compatible, and all that needs to be done is to get past the limitations that Apple arbitrarily enforces as far as what it considers supported hardware. There's much more going on under the hood during the boot process, such as reading NVRAM and BIOS settings, but OpenCore can manage translating all of that in a way that keeps macOS Monterey happy to boot, happy to run, and happy to update seamlessly on a 12-year-old computer. Really. Once installed, you almost wouldn't know that OpenCore has been deployed. It does its job during the boot process, and then gets out of the way. Set up properly, it persists across shutdowns and reboots, works with iCloud, and allows you to have an essentially vanilla macOS experience. Your computer is running macOS software unmodified and is able to support the features of macOS up to the limit of your hardware. OpenCore also brings back pre-boot graphics, even with standard PC GPU cards that don't give you this feature on standard supported versions of the OS, like Mojave. So you're wondering, how hard can this be to install? I myself put off trying OpenCore until Mojave's support ran out, but in retrospect, it was less difficult than I imagined it was going to be. It took me the better part of a Sunday afternoon to completely master it, going carefully, step by step. It's not hard at all to get an initial OpenCore installation going. You just have to mount a hidden partition in the terminal, populate it with some files, and then boot into recovery mode and set that OpenCore EFI shim file as the boot target. From that point forward, the hardware boots first to OpenCore, and then OpenCore transfers control to the operating system. The real work of the installation is in dealing with the myriad options that OpenCore offers via a configuration file, config.plist. It's a very extensible and well-thought-out platform, but it takes some investigation to decide what options you need to turn on and turn off, and then some serious attention to detail to find them in the plist file and set them up properly. All of this is painstakingly documented in a wiki post over at the MacRumors.com Mac Pro Forum, which is the go-to resource for open core on the Mac Pro technology and advice. That forum member mentioned earlier, CDF, has done yeoman's work getting countless newbies up and running OpenCore, myself included. The approach I've just described might be described as the hands-on purist approach. It gives you the most control, and you come away with a pretty good understanding of what OpenCore is doing and why. There are also some other ways to install OpenCore. MacRumors forum member Martin Lowe has created a pre-configured package that essentially skips over the intermediate steps to give you a well-rounded OpenCore environment without having to dig into all the details. Another approach is something called the OpenCore Legacy Patcher, or OCLP. OCLP is a more automated system with the ambitious goal of supporting more than just Mac Pro hardware, and thus it does not strictly adhere to the vanilla Mac OS goal. There are some drivers inserted to handle outdated hardware, for instance. At this point, you might be saying, well, surely there must be some downside or sacrifice to running OpenCore, isn't there? 
My answer to that question would be that first you have to be willing to live a little bit out on the unsupported ledge of the Apple universe. What does that mean? Well, it means from time to time, Apple will release software that degrades the experience for a while until the community figures out a way around the problem. One example of this was evident last year, when something that Apple did in a Big Sur update caused intermittent problems with successful booting under OpenCore. It didn't break it outright, but rather one might experience the problem randomly. And here is where that fanatical community shows its value. One of the forum members named Syncretic <laughs> figured out that the problem was actually a race condition in the enumeration process during boot, and he wrote an open core delay module to make booting more reliable again. But wait, it gets better. Apple releases Monterey 12.1, and mysteriously, the race condition is fixed. By Apple. <laughs> was it a happy accident? Or are there a few engineers at Apple giving the classic Mac Pro community a little assistance? We don't know. This also illustrates that you have to be willing to stay up to date, at least minimally, with what is going on in the OpenCore community. I do that by skimming the forum posts on OpenCore just to stay up to date with what other people are experiencing and how they're solving problems. In the end, is it worth it to run a 2010-era computer using OpenCore? I would say a resounding yes. My daughter's 2015 MacBook Pro, for some reason, boots in an insanely quick 10 seconds, easily beating my Mac Pro at 35 seconds. But I know that I can run a Linux virtual machine, encode a video file, browse in Firefox with 60 browser tabs open simultaneously, and the Mac Pro doesn't even break a sweat. It's my 13-passenger Mac truck with the dual Porsche turbocharged engines, finely upholstered in the purple-blue shades of Mac OS Monterey. I think this is so cool, Kurt. I love the idea of keeping a, a great machine alive, a Mac truck as it was. And uh, and I think that's really neat. I had never heard of OpenCore before. And I, I just, this is cool. I just think it's all around cool. We should always be able to keep our computers running. As long as that hardware is running, why shouldn't it be allowed to be on the latest OS? Patched and secure as it were. I remember distinctly when the Palm Pilots first came out. My friend Eric told me I needed one. I asked him why. He said, because it can hold your calendar, your contacts, and your notes in it. And I said, well, that's fine, but I already had a Franklin planner that could do that. And I pointed at my eight and a half by 11, three pound leather bound planner that I carried everywhere. everywhere. He kept badgering me. And even though I thought I didn't need one, I finally got one on his advice. Of course, it was a much better solution to the same problem for so many reasons, not the least of which was being able to have a backup of all that critical data. I remember somewhere along the line, someone actually borrowed my Franklin planner from my office and I just freaked out because my whole life was in there. I didn't know what, what meetings to go to. I didn't have anybody's phone number. It was a nightmare. Anyway, years later, I remember distinctly when the BlackBerry came out. I didn't understand why people they thought they were all that in a bag of chips. Then my friend Mike, who was pretty much like that little kid named Mikey in the cereal commercial, you know, hey, Mike, let's have Mikey try it. He hates everything. Anyway, Mikey told me, <laughs> he said, I should get one. And I asked him why. 
Well, he was fairly high up in our company and he got a ton of emails. He explained that when he went home every night, he used to push back from the dinner table, say goodnight to his family, and then spend a couple of hours answering emails. He told me that when he got the BlackBerry, he realized that he could answer emails during all these little wasted waiting moments throughout the day. You know, like waiting for an elevator, he'd knock off a couple of emails, or waiting for a meeting to start, he could knock off a couple more. He found that he no longer needed to leave his family at night to answer his emails. I knew if Mike liked it, I had to try it too. I got a BlackBerry, and then I finally understood the value. Well, a few years ago, someone told me I needed to get a Stream Deck. I really wish I knew who first suggested it, but they started a long line of people who said the same thing. Every person explained to me why they love their Stream Deck, and I'd go look at the Stream Decks online and I'd hover over the purchase button, but I just couldn't figure out how it could help me. This is, of course, a story about how much I love my new Stream Deck. The Stream Deck by Elgato is a small box with a bunch of buttons on the front, and you plug the device into your Mac or PC via USB. Each of the buttons is programmable to execute functions on your computer that you define. I'll describe in detail how it works in a moment, but I wanted to just set the stage of what Stream Deck is. Stream Deck was originally designed to help streamers, hence the name, and I think that's why people originally thought I would need it. I'm streaming video right now. An example would be that you're live broadcasting and you want to insert some audio at a specific time. You could just push a button on the Stream Deck and play that audio into the stream. I never need to do that, so I ignored people telling me I needed a Stream Deck. At some point, someone again suggested I needed a Stream Deck. I looked at the Stream Deck website and learned that they have models with 6 buttons, 15 buttons, or 32 buttons. Obviously, I couldn't buy any of them because there's too many choices. How would I know which one to buy? Then I heard other podcasters talking about their Stream Decks and how it was a life-changing device, and I'd again look at them online, and I'd run away because there were too many choices. At some even later point, someone suggested I test out the capability with the free 30-day trial of the mobile app for Stream Deck. No hardware to buy, just turns your phone into a 15-button Stream Deck. I downloaded the app to my phone, and I figured out how to get the buttons to execute some of the automations I've already set up as keystrokes. It was really fun. It was also way more work than using a keystroke. Instead of mashing down a bunch of keys on my keyboard to launch all of the apps I need for the live show, now I had to pick up my phone, authenticate with Face ID, find the app, launch it, rotate my phone into landscape mode, and then push a button. Not quite as easy as just mashing down those keys. If you were using the mobile app all the time while streaming, I suppose it makes sense to have your mobile device already running the Stream Deck mobile app and maybe propped up in an easel so it's ready to use, but for me, it just wasn't that convenient. The Stream Deck mobile app costs $3 a month or $26 a year, while the 15-button equivalent Stream Deck is $150. You could use the mobile app for nearly six years before hitting that $150. Plus, it would always be with you. I can see how it might be great for others, but it just wasn't helpful to me. Now, my good friend Pat Dengler is much less cautious when it comes to buying gear than I am. She tries out everything and then just sells what she doesn't need. She went on the site OfferUp, which is kind of like a modern-day Craigslist, and found someone selling an unopened 32-button Stream Deck XL for a great price, so she bought it, not knowing whether she needed it or not. I stood in the sidelines waiting to hear how it changed her life and what amazing things she was now able to do. After a few weeks of playing with it, I asked her how it was going, and her reaction was, meh, I don't think I need it. I was relieved because obviously my instincts were correct and I did not need one. 
That didn't stop people from telling me I needed a Stream Deck. Then two things happened. Pat came over for a visit, she brought her Stream Deck with her, and left it for me to play with as long as I wanted. The second event was my friend David Roth, you know, the one who always complains when I do math on the show. Anyway, he sent me a photo of his new Stream Deck XL. With a Stream Deck in the house and a bad case of fear of missing out, because David had one now, I really had no excuse to give, but to give the Stream Deck a good college try. Spoiler, I bought my own Stream Deck XL. I'm not saying it's life-changing, but it's very cool, and I think it has helped me be more productive already. Now, after a thousand-word setup, let's talk about Stream Deck and see if I can explain why people are so nuts about it. I'm definitely not going to talk about it from a streamer point of view, but hopefully more from a normal geek perspective. So think of the Stream Deck systems as a tool to improve your productivity by automating functions on your computer and then putting them a push-button away. These automations can be as simple as launching an app to as complicated as running keyboard maestro macros that run HomeKit scenes and more. Stream decks are managed by an app you run on your computer. You add functionality to the buttons on the virtual grid of the app, and you instantly see those changes on the physical Stream Deck, so it's kind of a mirror of what the physical Stream Deck looks like. I know what you're thinking. Is the Stream Deck app accessible to the blind? Sadly, it is not. I don't see why it couldn't be made accessible, since the whole thing operates on, a, on text lists and a rectangular grid of buttons. I sent them a tweet asking what the roadmap is for making it accessible. Anyway, moving along for the sightlings. On the right sidebar of the app are some default actions you can add to your buttons. The default set of actions are separated into categories, a lot of which are streaming related, along with more general categories like system, where you can execute normal OS-type functions. You can add more categories, but we'll get to that in a moment. Let's start with a very easy example. Let's say you want to launch an application with the push of a button. Simply drag the app from your desktop onto one of the buttons in the virtual interface. By default, this will put the icon for the app on the button, and it'll also put a title, which is the name of the app. With the icon there, I think it's kind of unnecessary to have the title there as well, but you can delete it if you like. If you like titles, you can edit the font and change whether it's at the top or the bottom. You now have a button to launch an app. You've done your first automation, right? This is great. Maybe not life-changing yet, but it's still kind of cool. What if to do a certain task, you needed three apps to open? When I start a new session of recording videos for Don, I always launch ScreenFlow to record and edit, iThoughts for my mind map for the project, and Audio Hijack to route my audio. On the right sidebar, there's an option called Multi-Action, and this allows you to stack a bunch of actions into one button push. As a very simple example of what it can do, I dragged the multi-action option onto a virtual button in the Stream Deck app, and then I added the opening of my three apps into it. Now, with one button push, I can launch all three apps and be ready to go. Now, another built-in system function is to open a website. With the same process, you can choose website from the system category, drag it onto a button, enter the URL, and you're done. The icon for the website will just be a globe, which is a good starting point because it tells you it's a website, but if you set up five websites to launch, how would you know which button was which other than the titles? You could add that text, but you know, that's boring. Turns out you can drag in any icon you have onto the buttons in the app right from your desktop. I made a website launch button to, uh, to go to podfeet.com, and then I dragged the Podfeet logo onto it. Now I can go directly there with a push of a button, and of course, it's quite recognizable on the Stream Deck. Now I know it seems easy to type in a URL, especially when your fingers know by heart, but there's something pleasing about pushing the button. 
I added one to open the WordPress interface to podfeed.com and one to the blog post category on podfeed.com, which I reference quite often. Now, I've got a lot more to tell you about some more complex things you can do, but I want to take a sidestep here to try to help answer the question of how many buttons do you really need on a Stream Deck? As I mentioned, I got the XL model that Pat had loaned me when she purchased it because she knew people who regretted getting one of the models with fewer buttons. But let me review the options you have available to you. The Stream Deck Mini has six keys for 80 bucks. That's three by two. There you have the Stream Deck Mark II or the Stream Deck Nothing. There are two models with the same number of buttons, and I didn't bother paying attention to what the differences were, but I think the Mark II is newer. Anyway, those models have 15 keys in a 3x5 grid for $140. The Stream Deck XL has 32 keys, which is 8x4 uh, in the grid for $250. Now, it's pretty obvious that the more buttons you have, the more things you can have immediately available at your fingertips. However, if you got the Mark II or the Mini, you aren't restricted to just the number of buttons on the device. In the Stream Deck app, you have the option of creating different profiles. Each profile can have a completely different set of button assignments. Now, using my computer work as an example, I've created one profile for everyday work with Ulysses for driving, uh, writing draft posts and Mars Edit for finalizing my blog posts and links to the three Podfeet, different Podfeet websites that I was talking about earlier. And I'm in and out of those all the time. So all of those things are instantly available to me. I call that my home profile. I created a second profile for the live show with the many different functions I need to perform. Then you can create a button on each profile that switches you to the other one. So I assigned a button on my home profile to switch me to the live show profile, and I used my NoSilicast Live logo for that button. On the live show profile, I assigned a button to go back to home, and I put a little house icon on it. It does take up a button to be able to flip profiles, and if you had three to switch between, you'd need two buttons to switch profiles. If you have a 32-button XL, that's not a big deal, but with the 6-button Mini, you'd likely need more profiles, and that would use up even more buttons for navigations between those profiles. So profiles seem to be most useful for switching between entirely different contexts. But what if you have a need for more buttons within the same context? For that, you can add pages. As soon as you add a page, it automatically adds back-forward buttons on all the pages, so it's very easy to flip between them. For a smaller stream deck, to save buttons, it might be better to use pages than profiles. I like that we have both options, though. Even with pages and profiles, I'm not sure a six-button stream deck would be of much use, though, because as soon as you have to push a button to change screens in order to push a button, it might have been far easier to just do the task by hand. Now, the one advantage of the Big Girl Stream Deck XL is that you have a lot of room to move buttons around and lay them out in a way that makes sense. I have big gaps where no buttons are assigned, so I don't have to do as much Tetris playing to move buttons around. At $100 more than the Mark II, though, it's a bit of a luxury. The sweet spot for most people is probably the 15-button Stream Deck Mark II. I think that's why companies always make three sizes, because like Goldilocks, the middle one is usually just right. All right, let's get back into more things you can do with Stream Deck now that I've chosen which model to get for you. One of the things people said would be cool is that I would be able to map things like text expander snippets or keyboard maestro macros to the different buttons. Now, I'm not a maestro by any means of keyboard maestro, but I've written a few simple macros that do some cool things for me. For example, I have a macro that simply opens up all of the apps I need for the live show. I assigned a finger cramping keyboard trigger to do it, and it's fully in my muscle memory. 
when people tried to talk me into getting a Stream Deck, I didn't understand why it would be any easier than using my keystroke. I signed a couple of macros to buttons on my Stream Deck, and during the live show last week, just days after getting it, I used the buttons to trigger the macros, and I was really surprised that I loved it. So this was the thing I couldn't figure out. If I already had a, a keyboard a, a shortcut, why would it be better to push a button? Well, uh, the second thing is that Mike Price, also known as Grumpy in the chat room, wrote me a super complex macro for one function in the live show that I normally run by holding down Command, Control, Shift, Option, H. Instead of doing that, I simply hit a button that had the Snow White character Grumpy on it. I couldn't believe how much easier and somehow more intuitive it was to press that button instead of using the keystroke that I'd you know, been using for quite a long time. I took a break in recording and I said, I don't understand why I like it so much better than using a keystroke. That's when Jill from the North Woods piped up. She was in the chat room and she also just got a stream deck and she gave me a great answer. She said that even if you know a keystroke, it requires some amount of cognitive load to remember the keystroke and then execute it. In contrast, pushing a button only re requires you to recognize the icon. I think she's right, and it shows the importance of having an icon you can recognize, like Grumpy from Snow White. Now, I know a lot of people who are not keystroke junkies, and maybe the, uh, the Stream Deck would be really good for them. Everyone tells these people, Text Expander is the greatest thing on Earth. And it really is. But if your brain just isn't wired for keystrokes, it's never going to become part of your workflow. It's possible that a Stream Deck could be just what they need. What if you had a button you could push that typed your name or typed your signature for emails or wrote some boilerplate language that you always have to go find and copy and paste? I haven't tested this idea yet on my non-keystroke friends, but I'm wondering if button pushing might be more intuitive for them than using keyboard shortcuts. Now, it's about time I confess something. Within hours of playing with the Stream Deck, I felt like I'd discovered everything, and it seemed kind of limited. I forget exactly what specific thing I was trying to do when I hit the wall, but I searched on the interwebs whether there was a way to do it with Stream Deck, and I was directed to a video by Alec Johnson on his channel, Take One Tech. Now, that name might sound familiar to you, because after watching Alec, I had to have him on Chit Chat Across the Pond last week to talk about how he does his videos. It's a fantastic episode. You should definitely go listen to that. Anyway, Alec's video answered my questions quickly and succinctly and taught me so much more that the Stream Deck could do. I immediately began devouring his content as I started to understand the power of this device. For example, I said just now that you could trigger text expander snippets within Stream Deck. While that's true, it's a two-step process where a plugin for Stream Deck allows you to access Keyboard Maestro, which that can then trigger a text expander snippet. Now, that sounds unnecessarily complex, and it kind of is, but Alex's video on the process made it very easy to get it to work, and of course, I linked to it in the show notes. Now, remember I said I felt like I'd explored everything that Stream Deck could do, and it just seemed limited? By watching Alex's video, I learned that there's a Stream Deck store. Now, don't get worried. This is just a repository where you can download the hooks to control other applications. It's not a store where you pay for things. While Stream Deck comes with some built-in hooks, the store has a vast catalog of plugins, icons for your buttons, as well as royalty-free music and sound effects. The plugin categories are audio, developer tools, like my beloved Visual Studio Code, engagement, finance, gaming, general, lighting, monitoring, music, productivity, smart home, social streaming, utilities, and video. Whew. 
Anyway, I told you how Alec explained how to run Keyboard Maestro macros with Stream Deck. He explained that in the store under Utilities, you'll find a plugin called KM Link. Once you've installed it from the store, you can just drag it onto any button, and then you'll get a dropdown to select the Keyboard Maestro macro you want to run when that button is pushed. This is how I added Grumpy's button to run Mike's super complex macro during the live show. Now, I know this next example of what I do with my Stream Deck is super dumb, but it's probably the thing I've used the Stream Deck for more than anything else. Under the lighting category in the store, I found the Elgato Lighting Control Center. Makes sense it would be in there because Elgato makes both the Stream Deck and my Keylight Air. From the plugin, I could add a button to my Stream Deck to turn my Elgato Keylight Air on and off. This is a light I use for lighting up my face for video, and the switch on the back is really hard to find. I know that sounds dumb, but it's really, really hard to find. I can do it from a menu bar app, but that's clumsy too. Now I have a very expensive light switch button on my stream deck. I told you this idea was dumb, but uh, now I have to figure out how to toggle on and off my new Logitech Lighter Glow, but that I think has Bluetooth, I'm not sure. Anyway. I should probably stop talking about the plugins in the store because I've only barely dipped my toe into it so far, so I'm not an expert, and I can't wait to dig into it more. The bottom line is that I definitely did not need a Stream Deck until Pat convinced me to try hers. Sometimes automation tasks mean spending three weeks creating something that saves you five minutes a week. But once I got the basic hang of the Stream Deck interface, I found that it only takes me a minute or two to add an automation to it. I may have spent a lot of time making my silly home icon, and it did take me a while to pick the right icons to switch between my profiles, but usually I, I sit there thinking, hey, I wonder if I could do this with Stream Deck, and a few minutes later, I've got a button that will speed me up. So, do you need a Stream Deck? Maybe you do. The best way to find out is to get someone to loan you one. Short of that, I recommend buying one and finding out for yourself. I think it's great fun, and I do find that when I'm away from my desk with my laptop, I actually miss my Stream Deck. I would like to take a moment to thank Troy Shimkus, Lewis Butler, Marty Gensius, Ryan Walden, and Zohar Zimmerman for supporting all of the shows at the Podfeet Podcast for the last two years. These fine people went to podfeet.com slash Patreon and signed up to pledge a dollar amount they thought reflected the value they get out of the show and matched what they could afford. As Tom Merritt and Brian Brushwood are fond of saying on the Cord Killers podcast, these people are helping keep this show live, loud, and independent. Now, I don't want to be beholden to advertisers. I'd rather be beholden to you. So please join Troy, Lewis, Marty, Ryan, and Zohar and help the show. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Boost Shots. We got a lot to talk about today, huh, Bart? What? It may not be as much as it looks in the show notes, but yeah, it, it's not nothing. Okay, three deep dives. Maybe they're three medium dives. They're medium dives, yeah. I, I put it this way. I wouldn't jump from too high a bridge or you'd break your neck. <laughs> All right, well, let's start with our feedback and follow-ups. Yeah, so the first thing is we talked about ID.me being used by from next year on by the US Treasury Department to try deal with the avalanche or tsunami or whatever you want to call it of tax fraud that happens every year through filing online. And I guess just to underline the point, Naked Security is back out just to warn everyone that it's tax season in the US and it's happening again. So be on the be on the lookout for tax scams in your email and stuff. 
but the Treasury have decided to consider alternatives to ID.me over privacy concerns, and that follows on from the CEO admitting that the company uses one-to-many facial recognition, which is... People consider that to be a problematic type of facial recognition. That's the one that Amazon uses. Yeah. I think is what they said it was going to be. And 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 their press release said, we are not using one-to-many, we're using one-to-one. And I then think, the yeah. CEO is like, well, yeah, except where we are actually using one-to-many. I don't think there's a problem with one-to-many. I think there's a problem with lying. <laughs> yes. Well, there might also be a problem with one-to-many, but lying... Right out of the gate? As a second factor, one too many is reasonable. But not being honest when you're doing something so critical? I, so the, the one to many from, from Amazon, though, is the one that has a lot of trouble recognizing African-American faces or darker-skinned people. That's okay, the that's one a that's problem. Ex- so it's not a problem because it's one too many. It's a problem right. if it can't handle... Yeah, that, that's a problem. Yes, yes. So, okay, so stay tuned. Yes, they're considering tuned. alternatives. They are, which is which is probably a good outcome. They have to do something, and they may have fallen for politicians' logic. We must do something. This is something. Therefore, we must do this. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, glad they're being considerate still. They're considering. Yes, exactly. Uh, some developments in the NSO Group Pegasus story. Um, we now know uh, that the FBI purchased software from the NSO Group, but apparently didn't use it, or so they say. The only shocking part about that is they didn't use it. (laughs) Probably, yeah. Uh, There's also, as we kind of suspect, as we've hinted at a few times, uh, reports have now surfaced of another Pegasus-like software being sold by a less prominent company because the NSO group were quite shouty. Um, Mm -hmm. It was the same vulnerability, so if you're patched, you're patched. But again, the problem is bigger, and the industry, the NSO group is not the whole industry. The NSO group are just one of the more visible people in an industry that I find quite distasteful. So that is there. And if you fancy a read of horrible details that will make you cranky, the New York Times have an amazing report in the New York Times magazine doing a really deep dive into the NSO group, which has some um, original reporting in it and stuff. Like it's The scroll bar is very small. Um, I, I'll be honest, I haven't finished it myself, but it is it is up to the New York Times' standards, so it is linked in the show notes. If you maybe we need to uh, start a new emoji for a, like a little shower head, <laughs> like you will require a shower after this article. <laughs> yeah, it's good, but yeah. Um, in the world of air tags, then we have uh, two developments of note since the last we spoke on the topic. Um, the first is a new twist in the tale that. I find quite concerning. There is now a black slash grey market emerging in second-hand air tags that have been intentionally had their speaker broken. So people buy air tags, open them, break the speaker, close them, and then sell them as stealth air tags. Oh, jeez. Now, that gets rid of the audible beep, but it doesn't get rid of the phone telling you you're being followed but that's still less good right that's yeah. so because they can't stop the phone alert without stopping it being a tracker which is good right because either no one can spy on you or yeah either it can't be used to track or it will give alerts to iPhones nearby and with the Android app you will at least get an alert if you scan 
And I'm going to plug my own Let's Talk Apple. We had a very good discussion about this with Rosemary Orchard. And the one thing I really, really wish is that Apple would make it easy in the same way they did work with Google for the COVID tracker. Both, all, all phones should scan for all trackers. So whatever needs to be done under the hood, they just need to work together so that an Android phone will give you the same warnings as an iPhone for Apple stuff. And frankly, that same level of support should be there for every other brand of tracker. So be that Amazon's new networky thing or be that tile. It should all, they should, every phone should be proactively warning you about every following, everything that's moving with you that isn't yours. Yeah, that's a better answer. So yeah, then on the better news column, um, Apple have released the their updated personal safety user guide. Now this this is not AirTag specific. This is a document Apple have had various versions of over the years, but it's just been updated, which covers their entire suite of technology, including AirTag. And I'll quote you what the document itself says its purpose is. Offering quick checklists and in-depth feature tasks, this resource is designed to help customers experiencing technology-enabled abuse, stalking, or harassment understand the options available across the Apple ecosystem that can help you protect your personal safety. Huh. And it's it's big. Again, I, I'll be honest, I didn't read it all. I did scan through the headings. It, it looks very interesting, but the scroll bar was very small. Wow. Which is good. That's too well, but it's also too bad. Um, it's quite well structured, and what I've actually linked to in the show notes is a summary of the document uh, by Glenn Fleischman at Tidbits. Oh, okay. Which breaks okay. down the structure of the document and really helps you jump to the bits that matter. Okay. And gives a critique of where the document could be improved for V two of the document, which is also mm. interesting. In terms of act tracking transparency, it's been a very interesting two weeks since last we spoke. So Facebook had a terrible earnings call and their shares fell off a cliff and they sort of tried to blame Apple. Not, not just fall off, fell off a cliff, fell off a, a cliff, a mountain the size of something you'd have, say, on Mars. It dropped yeah. 25% in one day. Yeah. It was a good day. Yeah. Now, I know that erased a lot of personal wealth, but still. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if you invest, I don't feel bad for people who invest in... Technologies I consider immoral. If you're an oil company investor or a tobacco company investor or a Facebook investor, you're toxic to society. And if you lose your money, I I will play the world's smallest violin. Yeah, well, the only thing is a lot of people have money in mutual funds. And mutual. if you have a tech mutual fund, you just lost your shirt. Hopefully other people's profits outweigh Facebook's losses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on how big the mutual fund is, I guess, how many, because yeah. Apple are doing pretty well. Um, and Snap, yeah. right? So Facebook tried to throw Apple under the bus and blame it all on ATT. And they're also making... ATT being the app tracking transparency, right? Bing, bing, yes. Uh, and they also tried to say that Apple had a browser carve-out, but Apple's browser is the most heavily privacy-based browser of all. So to say that Apple are somehow letting privacy violating stuff through the browser is crazy talk. Well, I think the the idea is that if you go to google.com or you just use the search bar in Safari on your phone or on your Mac, it's going to default to to Google search and Google search is going to track you. I think that's what they were talking about. They weren't saying that the browser was necessarily doing it, but the fact that they use Google as their primary uh, search engine. I'm not saying I agree, but that was the context. No, because Apple also 
cut out all the third party cookies that Google needs. So mm. I, I don't think that actually stacks up. And the other oh, thing, okay. that, okay. the only thing that really doesn't stack up is that every so every ad based company is facing app tracking transparency. Right? It's it's not Apple aren't blocking Facebook; they're mm-hmm. blocking the whole concept. And so companies like Snap are facing the same headwind. But their shares are up 50% because as far as they were able to announce with their earnings call, that their their revenue has recovered and they have adapted to the new reality and they're fine. Another uh, contributor to Facebook going down so much was that they, uh, their daily active user count went down by a million. And that is has never happened. It's, it's never, never gone, gone down. down. At all, yeah. Yeah, their monthly active users is, is okay, but their daily active users, it's people going once a month because they feel like they have to, apparently. <laughs> right, and to me, that's actually what's going on here. So every social media comes and goes. They're like fashion. You know, bell-bottoms come and bell-bottoms go, mm-hmm. and Facebook is on the other side of the wave. And there's, they can pretend it's app-tracking transparency, but I don't think it is. I think they are mm-hmm. just, you know, MySpace, MySpace. Perhaps, but other people are facing the same headwind and they're not suffering in the same way. So in terms of how they are... It just tells you how dependent they were on tracking us, cross-site tracking of us. That's also possible. If they hitch their wagon even more tightly to ads than Snap and the other companies, then they would feel the headwind worse. That's a fair point. So you can imagine, oh, I'm I'm stretching this analogy, but they may have a bigger sail. So the gale is wreaking more havoc on their ship. I thought you might appreciate a nautical reference. (laughs) I don't think they have any other revenue. Meta does, but Facebook doesn't. I don't that's that I know fair. of. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, oh. I think they tried making Facebook glasses and Facebook. They, they tried a bunch of other things, but uh, you know, a Facebook phone. Yeah. So they just... did try to find ways to make money other ways, but they didn't figure it out. Yeah, that's true. Well, they have some thinking to do because I, I think Meta might be okay with the the diversification they're doing uh, sideways fair. to Facebook, but. Facebook itself is still the, the tail wagging that dog. Yeah, that's yeah. It'd be interesting time in those boardrooms. Um, that's for sure. Couldn't happen to better people. Kind of, yeah. Like I say, world's smallest violin. I, I'm not particularly sad. Um, Twitter made an interesting announcement. They were experimenting in smaller groups with both upvoting and downvoting to help their algorithms. So hmm. the reason you haven't seen this is because the whole point is that they don't show the upvotes and the downvotes, that it's not a popularity contest or whatever. It's purely a signal to help their intelligence. And Well, they don't have up and down voting for everybody. Right, exactly. So they have been experimenting with up and down voting. Upvoting was no good, so upvoting is just gone. And downvoting was working well for them in their experiments, so they are in the process of rolling downvoting out universally. But upvoting is available universally. There's a heart. That's okay. They also experimented with an explicit upvote and they're saying they're not rolling that out. (laughs) So heart and you suck. Great. Yeah, but one of them is visible, right? The heart is visible. That is a, that is a, that is a way. They'll keep, they'll keep the downvote invisible, but use it. Correct. Oh, interesting. Yes. Interesting. So it's a way basically for you to signal to to Twitter that there's something wrong with this tweet. Interesting. And if you made it that visible... That won't have political ramifications at all. <laughs> right, but if you made it visible, it would, because then it would become a game. 
right? Sure. Where you do a big pile on. So I'll yeah. be very interested. I'm looking forward to seeing how this were, this looks because I I wasn't involved in the testing because it's only a random sampling of people in certain countries. So I'm looking forward to seeing this for everyone. Yeah. Um, if you're living in the States, the Earnet Act, which is a, in my opinion, very ill-conceived attempt at regulating social media has been resurrected. It is a zombie legislation from last year that's back. I don't know if it's going anywhere, but it's back. So if you're in the States and you're interested, link in show notes for more details. And finally, I just want to dance on a grave. So remember Facebook had this notion that they were going to make their own currency? Yeah, yeah. And it got renamed a few times and its last name was DM, which is going to be a stable coin as opposed to a traditional cryptocurrency. Well, it's dead. They've they've finally accepted the inevitable and pulled the plug on that project. So Facebook See, they keep trying to make money other ways, Bart, and we yeah. don't let them. Yeah, I know, isn't it terrible? Oh, woogums. Um, which <laughs> translates nicely into our first semi-deep dive, which is Facebook, not Facebook, Google's attempt to replace third-party tracking cookies with something that works for Google. And their first attempt at this problem was something called Flock, because they liked bird metaphors, which was Federated Learning of Cohorts. And we did a deep dive on this in a security medium on the 7th of March 2021. So if you want to look back, you can do that. A very, very quick TLDR is that the idea was that your browser would watch you and group you into groups of like-minded people and then give those like-minded people an ID and then make that ID available to advertisers. And there were severe privacy concerns and the whole thing depended on other browsers joining in, which Hmm, no one thought was particularly likely. So there were two problems, privacy and everyone else joining in. Um, The biggest problem in terms of privacy was that it would learn by just the internet. It would learn everything. So if you were like other people because you share a race, or if you were like other people because you share a gender, or if you are like other people because you share an illness or an addiction or a sexuality, it would learn and group you and sell you. And we don't really want to be sold in that kind of a way because you don't want to be advertising that you you are a sufferer of alcoholism or whatever. Like There are certain sensitive topics that you shouldn't be using in this way. And so Flock couldn't tell them apart because it just learned everything. Okay, okay. So Where it sounds benign when you think, well, these are all people who look at cameras. Yes, exactly, which is benign, right? There are many, many, many benign Flocks that would come out of the Flock algorithm, but also many problematic ones. And so Facebook's, sorry, geez, I keep doing that today. Google's <laughs> new attempt turns the concept on its head. So instead of trying to just learn all the groups of people who are similar and then figure out what makes them the same, they have picked 300 areas of interests that are advertisable against that are safe. So do you like cameras? Start with the answer. Okay. Exactly. And then they assign those areas of interest to websites on the web. And then they match your browsing history over the last week to those mappings. And then they can give every person a collection of topics and they learn them by the week. And at the end of every week, they update your collection of topics to be everything you did in the three previous weeks is what your topics are based off. And then they will be your topics for the week. And then the next week, 
the last lot will fall off and a new week will come into the equation. And when you visit a website, they're not going to be given all of your topics. They're going to be given a a randomly chosen sample of your topics, and they're also throwing in some noise. So 5% of the time, they're just going to throw in a literally random topic, which means that any topic is deniable. So if, if you end up with a topic that says you're gay, well, that might just be the noise. Interesting. Right? Interesting. And it, when you say people, it's IP addresses or browsers? No, no, no it's people. Or... It's your browser. So this is built into your browser. So it is uniquely identifying you. So it is in Chrome. You log into Chrome. So it really is you. Oh, so you're logged into Google. Even if you're not, you're going to have one ID for that instance of Chrome. But if you're okay. logged into Google, you're going to have that one instance across your entire... Okay, but I mean, you could have sync. five people in the, in the house using that version of Chrome on that computer. Assuming if they don't all have in. their own accounts, which... Well, you'd have to be logged in for you to be you. No, I mean, That's what Mac, I was trying if to you're do. logged into the Mac with different accounts and they're different oh. Chromes. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, so essentially people. Essentially so people. this would, throughout the three weeks, Bart goes to uh, camera sites and he goes to astronomy sites and he goes to XKCD. He'll start getting ads for those things plus tuna fish. Yes. And... So it's going to collect more topics than it gives any one advertiser. Mm-hmm. And the, when it decides for the advertiser, it locks that decision in for a week by basically hashing the domain and then using that to pick some numbers within the array of possible topics. And okay. so that means that you end up being sticky for a week. So they can't, the website can't profile you based on your topics because they get sticky and they're a subset of your total. So if I go to podfeet.com and I go to the register, it's the same me. But if you look at my topics, they're not the same. So you can't correlate me across sites because I get different okay. topics. There's also the random noise thrown in and they're sticky for the week. So there's very little signal to track onto to try use this as a fingerprint. So okay. it's pretty well thought out. Um, the other thing is they only... Your your profile is only built up from sites participating in topics. So if you browse to podfeet.com, which is not taking part in topics, that doesn't that doesn't aggregate into your topics. Yeah, that's what's kind of interesting is they've got to do the work of trying to um, generate or figure out what are all these websites, what are the websites that I want to have. Uh, assigned some sort of category and and just and you know New York Times is an important one, but is let's talk Apple or Podfeet. Does that even get on the list? How do they they work through and and figure out who gets to or which ones they want to be on it? Maybe it's just the ones that want advertising. I but don't that's know. That's it, right? Because that's how it works. So how do they know okay. what topics belong to the New York Times? Well, the answer is the New York Times use the Topics API, so they have to say oh, right. what they're. <laughs> topics are and then they start to count towards right so it's actually the symmetry is how it works so is this does this look like it has legs then okay so it definitely solves the privacy problem and in fact steve gibson did a really good deep dive on it and it gets his thumbs of approval in terms of the privacy aspect so problem one of two is solved this does the privacy thing properly uh problem one of two though are the other browsers going to adopt it? If you ask me to bet on it, I would bet no, but we shall see. We shall see. 
there is a new problem that didn't exist with Flock. Because of the way the algorithm works, the more, the bigger your ad network, the more topics you're going to get. So this algorithm favors large ad networks over upstarts. In other words, okay. this is for Google by Google. This is exactly well, what... Why does it, how does it favor large networks? Because if you're an advertiser, the more different websites you're on, the more topics you get for oh. everyone. Okay, but if but if I'm uh, doing my own little ad network startup, I I can't af- or I'm not already connected to all of the different sites. Yes. So uh, someone like Google, so it's self fulfilling. Yes, exactly. So basically, this is engineered to be what Google want, and in order for this to t- to, to actually replace third party cookies, it needs to be something that all the browser manufacturers are happy with. And I just don't know if someone who has a monopoly on search is, if not a monopoly, then a part of a, no, they're not a monopoly. They're part of a very big duopoly in advertising and they're the world's biggest browser vendor. Someone with all of those conflicts of interest, are they the people who can propose a solution that Firefox and Microsoft are going to accept and put into their browsers? Yeah. Yeah. Can anything Google present ever be acceptable to Firefox and Microsoft? I'm not convinced. And Apple, Jesus, how can I forget Apple? Like, it just has to go into Safari too for this to, to, to replace third-party cookies. Can you see that being a negotiating item between Apple and Google when Apple's buying, uh, you know, being paid by Google to be the search engine? That will be one way to go. What I would like to see is that Google donate the entire concept to the W3C. Okay. And say, take this as your starting point, tweak it as needed, and we will commit to implementing it. for everybody. Yeah. 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 But it's interesting. And from a nerd engineering point of view, I think this is a very good approach. I just don't know if, if Google can be the ones driving this. I don't know if they can be in the driver's seat and have this succeed. So it's, it's interesting. Right. Right. Anyway, link in show notes to some interesting thoughts on it. Um, I, I think it's a worthy opinion piece linked and commented on by John Gruber. There's a nice description at Mac Observer. And for the people who prefer to listen, there is a link to Security Now with the time code set to jump straight to the part of the show about fl- about uh, topics. Okay. Which cool. is an hour and 38 minutes in. So the, that, oh, wow. that is helpful. <laughs> Good reason to have it. Good. Thank goodness for bookmarks, right? Yeah. So deep dive number two is Apple make SMS-based two-factor auth a little bit less bad. And I have very carefully Ooh. phrased it that way. <laughs> right? You're not going to the word good. I am not, because it, this does not address the fundamental problem with SMS-based 2FA, which is the SMS part. What this does is it allows us to have the convenience Apple have already been giving us without the security trade-off we have been suffering. So if you're an Apple user, be it an iOS or the Mac, and you have SMS-based two-factor auth, you're probably aware that every time you get an SMS message while you're on a website with a text box, it will offer the digit, the numeric code from the most recent text message as an autocomplete. It's the best thing ever. It is. But the way that was initially implemented, there's no way to know what website or app the text message belongs to. Oh, good so, point, because it's just there. It's just there. So if uh, there is a technique of phishing, which is a real-time technique where you pretend to be, say, a bank, 
and you trick the person into entering their username and password. And then in real time, you log into the bank with that username and password. That will trigger the bank to send an SMS. It arrives at the person's computer or whatever, is prompted as an autofill, but they're on your phishing site. But the browser has prompted it anyway. The user isn't paying great attention. The friction is zero. They click on it. They hit submit. Now they've sent the token to the bad guys who then send the token to the bank. And now they're in as you. Oh, 100% I would do that. Right. So at the end of the day, you always have to look up to the address bar to make sure you are who you think you are. But what Apple wanted to do was to stop helping the bad guys. So to make it so that a bank can choose to send an SMS message in such a way that it makes sense to human beings and computers. And so a year ago, they released an open spec and asked for comment. And that open spec has been on GitHub since. And it is now being implemented in iOS and macOS as of their most recent software updates. So the spec consists of four parts. So the SMS message comes in and it has four parts. The bit you see now stays the same, right? Whatever text they currently have, they just leave it alone. Then they add a blank line and then they add the computer readable bit. At symbol, domain name, pound sign, the number, optionally percent sign some sort of identifier for the relevant form or iframe. And so then Safari can read the text message, see the at bit, and then it just looks and it goes, this two-factor auth code is for Facebook, but I'm on Foosbook, and it will not show. Oh, so it just won't show up as something to paste, and then you'll go over to your to your text message and go, wait a minute. What's going on here? Why isn't this offering it to me? You, there's more. You could still go copy it from the text message, but right. it'd be a lot more work. Exactly. So Apple are not going to help you do the wrong thing. You may still do the wrong thing, but Apple are not going to facilitate you doing the wrong thing. Okay. So that's great. I think it's wonderful. The fact that it's an open standard, everyone can implement this in every OS. There's nothing, there's no secret sauce here. It's very straightforward. And um, apparently there are websites beginning to implement it. So this is happening for real. Great. But none of this changes the fact that SMS itself is broken. Right, right. So it is true, it is as true today that SMS based 2FA is better than no 2FA, but just about anything else in terms of 2FA is better than SMS based 2FA. So that remains the hierarchy. I am still frustrated that the uh, bank we use does allow uh, authenticator based two factor authentication, but But? only to one account. And Steve and I have two accounts. So to use two accounts, we have to use F- SMS. <laughs> That's technical debt. They have some technical debt somewhere causing that. It's a very weird scenario because for some reason we have two uh, user logins, I should say, to the same place. So we're two different humans entering the same set of bank accounts. Huh. And I think that's where they kind of messed up. Like, why would you need to have two separate? So it's not like I can't go in and do anything Steve can't see because I'm going into the same exact bank accounts. But the logins are different. Okay, well, no, my bank gives both myself and the better half a different login, but we see our own personal accounts and our shared account. So we see an interest. Our sets intersect, but are not the same. So you wouldn't see your better half's private accounts and exactly. he wouldn't see yours. Correct. See, we see both of ours. We we see all of everything for both of us. So it's just really? like two holes into the same pile. 
Yeah, Maybe no. the right answer is we just use the same login. <laughs> it, well, it may as well be since you're both seeing into the same. Yeah, like in our case, it wouldn't make sense because we, you know, we have our own private accounts and we have our right. joint stuff, and so we each see the appropriate set. So it's basically role based. You know, it's proper permission space access. This is a joint account. Two people can see it. This is a private account. One person can see it. So for us, yeah. it makes sense. But for you guys, since it's literally the same pot, yeah, just get the yeah. That's weird. <laughs> that is probably the answer. Yeah. So we now have something very special. We have a third deep dive, and I did not write one character of it. Yikes. Okay, so I'm hoping you at least scanned a little bit of it so you can tell people when I'm being dopey. What I did was I read through as much of the actual document you're basing this off as I could until it started raining so much I couldn't scroll my phone anymore. Um, (laughs) I got as far as the bit where it said VPNs, bye-bye, and then, then I got rained on. All right. So the subject at hand here is that the U.S. federal government has, uh, specifically the Office of Management and Budget, has issued a zero trust memo. And this is advising the federal government on how to improve cybersecurity. And the reason this is interesting is because it's a government agency and it's very, very forward leading. It's it's skating to where the puck is going to be. Can I just jump in here and say... I am astonished at how forward-leading this is. This is like someone went to, like, Microsoft are preaching this message really hard at their customers, going, please, 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 at least consider this approach to security. And to see, like, I am used to government agencies being the laggards. (laughs) Maybe they got hacked, Bart. (laughs) You say maybe. No, they got hacked. No, I mean, somebody hacked in and wrote a good document. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, maybe. But no, so I I was really, like, my first impression off the bat is just, wow, I recognize this. I I recognize this advice. I have seen this advice. This is actually best practice. Yeah, and, and, and some of it's looking beyond what is best practice today, even for companies that are doing things right. And I don't understand 100% of these mm-hmm. things, and that's why I'm glad you read some of them, but I understand some of it. We uh, There was a report years ago that proved that, uh, a study that proved that having rotating passwords where you have to have a new password every 30 days actually makes people create worse passwords because they just yes. start doing a pattern because they, they don't have any other choice, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean... If they use a password manager, but not so much. So the uh, the Zero Trust memo says eliminate rotating passwords. Just not going to do that. But it also says eliminate special characters. And they said that that creates worse passwords as well. And I, I thought I'm that assuming was... they have evidence of this because yeah, I have seen studies um, where basically, if depending on how you tweak your password rules, there's a happy medium. If you make it, if you let them. If you make it too lax, like you can have a four-character password with no special characters, well, people will do that, and you'll have terrible, terrible, terrible passwords. If you make it too strict, they start writing them on post-it notes, they start <laughs> cycling them so that the same ones are used every... You know, they'll figure out that I'm only allowed to reuse three, so I'll have four passwords, and this look-back won't catch me, and I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> like, if you make it too hard, the human starts to try to counteract the system and the end result is less security. So there is actually a happy medium in the middle and the research on that keeps shifting. So I well believe that they have research saying the special characters are not helping, in which case I yeah. agree. To and maybe in. that gets back to the length matters more than anything else thing. Really so, um, But they also 
shockingly, well, this is obvious, uh, uh, dropping the use of SMS and <laughs> phone verification for 2FA. And I was curious about phone verification, why that one would be dropped. For the same reasons, because the reason an SMS is problematic is because SIM swapping is so darn hard. Well, if they're phoning okay. you rather than texting you, the SIM swapping is exactly the same problem. Okay, okay. Um, all right, that makes sense. But they took it another step further. They said, we're going to get rid of uh, Authenticator app-based two-factor authentication and instead recommending Authenticator devices like a, a YubiKey. Yeah, so they didn't say you have to get rid of them. They're discouraging them. They're, they're basically, they were saying that they would prefer you to phase away from those in favor of hardware devices. And the, the important thing with um, FIDO2 is that your iPhone has all of the hardware to be a hardware authenticator device. So you don't need, it doesn't have to be a US, it doesn't have to be a standalone thing like a YubiKey. Your phone has all the hardware in it thanks to the secure enclave and the appropriate APIs now with FIDO2. So WebAuthn2, which is part of the FIDO2 standard. Your phone can be a YubiKey. So it's becoming much easier to do that. So that's not as onerous as it sounds. Okay. I, I do always wonder, though, if, if this is really for the federal government, the uh, classified computers don't have a USB port that's available to you to stick a, a, a YubiKey in. Right. Okay, and so I know they have NFC-based ones, but you can't do... I mean, my laptop doesn't have okay. NFC. A typical PC doesn't. Right, but what they're also saying, so I, I think the thing that struck me immediately is that they led the document by saying you have federated authentication, SSO. So you have one place to sign on with extremely strong authentication, and then that, occasion, then that authentication is with you for a finite amount of time and lets you do everything. Mm -hmm. So you have one identity provider, so you wouldn't be proving your identity necessarily on a machine where you can't prove your identity, you would get rights for a very finite amount of time and then they would expire. So this is something that we talked about a few weeks back where the new approach in Microsoft is that you don't give someone admin rights on Active Directory. You, you give them the right to get the right for a week. Yeah, right, 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 right. But that's still, I don't know how you authenticate... Well, and you also can't, for that matter, you can't authenticate with your phone because you can't bring your phone into classified areas either. So you've got a classified computer, you've got no thumb, you can't stick a thumb drive in, so you can't use a YubiKey, it doesn't have uh, NFC, and you can't use your phone for two-factor authentication. Okay, then there is no, okay, there is no way that the classified machines are not going to have some sort of biometric reader in the future because otherwise they can't implement this kind of stuff. So if that means right. that yeah. they... I could, you have Windows Hello and stuff coming in where you have cryptographically strong ways of adding in biometric readers. So yeah, this they is a very forward-looking document. Yeah, they don't allow cameras either, so the cameras are all disabled. Um, right, uh, but the, so the, the, Windows Hello doesn't, doesn't use a camera. It's, um, it does. Uh, well, it's infrared with a dot projector. They, oh. Yeah, typical yeah. webcam, you have to have extra sensors to use Windows Hello. True. Uh, a, a normal webcam is not enough because it is doing IOR. It's actually much more like Face ID. Yeah, I just don't know whether either one of those. It, it'll be interesting to see where they go, but they, yeah, they've got to start figuring this out. One of the pieces I didn't understand at all was they said that having to use something like YubiKey, they said it would require agencies or companies to push device certs to authenticate, which mm -hmm. evidently would require inventory of users' devices, which is problematic in the bring-your-own-device world. 
What does all that mean? Okay, so in order... So one of the factors in multi-factor authentication... So I'm in the Microsoft world, so I'm going to use that as an example. So when I log into my Microsoft account, my Microsoft account knows whether I'm on a machine managed by my employer or whether I'm on a machine of my own. And it applies different rules to me depending on whether I'm on a managed or unmanaged machine. So if I'm on an unmanaged machine, I have to do way more hoop jumping. And in the future, it will be a case that no amount of hoop jumping is acceptable if you're not on a managed machine. But what does it mean to be a managed machine? The answer is the machine has a digital certificate that has been issued to it by corporate IT to prove it is... Okay, so your personal phone has a certificate that's been put on it. Yes, correct. Okay, and that makes it managed, but that means they have to inventory the devices and know where they sent all these keys. Yes. I got you. So it's it's hard, but not insurmountable. Nowhere near insurmountable. Something like Intune, Microsoft Corporate Portal. It's, It's not impossible work, but it's not zero work. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I thought was really interesting, and and from reading the article, uh, I'm quoting a lot of this from an article at bastionzero.com, that basically the person said, I wrote this so you don't, I I read the whole US government memo so you don't have to. It's a really good article, uh, by the way. Like, I I I didn't get to the bottom, but I really like the way they wrote it, starting from the top and working the way down. So I'm going to double thumbs up the article. Yeah, so the the piece I thought was really interesting was she said that VPNs aren't recommended, rather authenticating people to specific services instead of the entire network. And she said that's kind of what companies are going towards now anyway. It is. And yeah. I didn't know that, that, but that seems a lot more sensible because you let somebody into the whole network and they quit the company or do something nefarious, you know, they've got access to to everything. But if you say, okay, you're allowed to do this one task, because you were supposed to be doing your time card right now, you're going into the time card service and that's it. Yes. So that is, the, the old model was that you had a perimeter, like a medieval castle, and mm-hmm. your perimeter was like the edge firewall, really. And then you got through that perimeter with a VPN. But all of your security was around the concept of bad guys are out there and mm-hmm. you're in here, which is garbage in a cloud-based world. And so it's coming from inside the house. Exactly. It's all coming from inside the house. Now, universities have been living in that space for longer because our students are inquisitive, young, and perhaps not quite aware of consequences. That is a very bad mix. So we we have to assume, and universities have always had to assume, that students are not to be trusted. Now, I don't mean that as a, as a, as a, a that sounds worse than I mean it, but... You can't assume children are not allowed to be trusted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. They're not they're gonna stick their fingers in the plug socket for want of you know, for the digital plug socket. It happens, yeah. it absolutely happens. And because they're students and it's not really crime, they're just experimenting, they're naive. Mm. It, it's part of the learning experience, frankly, especially if you have a computer science department. They're going to do these things. <laughs> it's their job, right? Kind of is. To be that so, inquisitive, yeah. So we have never worked on this model of we have a moat and a wall and then everything inside it is safe and everything outside of it is dangerous. So the un- the fundamental underlying this entire document is that you need to get out of the habit of looking at it as being about a, an edge where you're, you're, you don't have a perimeter. There is no concept of a perimeter. You protect individual things. So it's role-based access control. So you have a right to do this thing for this time. Yeah, and yeah. if you leave, then you're, no credential you have has a lifetime of more than N days. And the, if, you're the NIA, if you're someone really important, N might be one. 
You may actually right. have to come in every morning and get your access. But, yeah. you know, more realistically, it's a week or two weeks in a corporate environment. But after okay. that time, all of your credentials have expired. Even if IT do nothing, after a week, you have nothing left. And that also solves the problem of if somebody quits or gets fired, their authentication has disappeared. Yeah. So the next thing they talked about was they mandated encrypted HTTP, duh. But they also uh, mandated encrypted DNS, and that's the DNS over HTTPS we've talked about. That is a way of doing that. Yeah, there are also other there are also other techniques for encrypted DNS, but the simplest by a million and one miles is, is, is ODO, or DOH or ODOH, either of those two. Right. And the the. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, that's finally taking off. That That's starting to actually go from being hypothetical to real with people like Cloudflare acting as providers, Firefox defaulting to it. That's actually become a plausible thing now, whereas yeah, even yeah. two or three years ago, I would have said that was pie in the sky. But perhaps the most surprising section was that the, rec- the memo recommends welcoming external partners and independent parties to test vulnerabilities. Uh, so this is kind of in stark contrast with the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which criminalizes those who exceed authorized access. I mean, somebody tried to use it on somebody for uh, looked at a government website and looked at the uh, at the source code and was able to find a password. And they were and they somebody brought them up on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act just like a month or two ago. That was a so governor, this, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah, a governor who didn't understand anything. Yeah. Uh, but I thought that was that was really cool. If they're saying no, no, you have to let people try to try to bash in the in the moat walls. Yeah. Now, what they're actually saying there is that pen tests should be encouraged, as should bug bounties. So you should basically have yeah. a page outlining what you know. If you you know you you may attack these things and tell us the results, and we won't prosecute you. But that doesn't mean it's a free for all. They're not saying you have to have a free for all, but they're saying that you should encourage responsible so basically you should have a policy um this is on limits this is off limits here's here's how you report vulnerabilities to us here are our bounties and also go out to tender for penetration tests yeah yeah well anyway the, there's a, we put a link to the bastionzero.com uh article that that breaks down the document it's really really good reading and also if you have a lot of time on your hands the original uh, US federal government memo which as bart likes to say has a wee tiny little scroll bar but yeah it's, very, uh, very tiny scroll bar on my i'm iPhone. really glad she outlined all that for us that was fantastic yes absolutely uh so alison thank you so much for for bringing this really fun topic to us um, and for oh, writing good. the show notes that was uh, i Yay. like this i like this approach i shall <laughs> i shall encourage you more often this was good <laughs> okay Bert's just figured out he does all the work for security bits <laughs> newsflash <laughs> Uh, so action alerts. Um, if you run Linux, there is something which has been nicknamed PwnKit. There's something in almost every version of Linux called Pol, PolKit, short for policy kit. It is, in effect, like sudo. It lets not root be root. There's a bug in it. That's bad. Patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Hmm. Apple have patched almost everything. Uh, iOS, iPadOS, macOS. WatchOS, Big Sur, Security Update 2022-001 for Catalina and Safari 15. Patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Uh, That Safari information leak we talked about two weeks ago, that is plugged. And there is also a variant of the Shrootless bug we talked about last year. A new variant has been found and squished. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch for that reason. 
If I'm not lying, I believe the Safari leak was fixed back uh, back a uh, whatever Big Sur. I, I forget how far back, but they fixed it. Another one back that was not just Monterey. As far as I understand, that they fixed it wherever it existed. Oh, okay. Okay. Good answer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then two PSAs for WordPress users. Um, Active Access Press is quite a big provider of plugins and themes. And they they got hacked and a malicious backdoor was injected into their website. So if you downloaded their plugins or their themes from their website, you downloaded malware. Ooh, yikes. Access uh, press, huh? Yeah. And then there's another very popular plugin called Elementor. And that one has a traditional security vulnerability. So it's not that they were hacked and there's a malicious backdoor. It's simply they made a programming gaffe. So there's a big problem there. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Okay. Just two. In terms of worthy warnings, then, something very interesting highlighted by Vice.com and all of this. What's the the new tulips, if if anyone is familiar with the idea of uh, um, bubbles and stuff. The new new hotness that I'm not sure has any future is NFTs. OpenSea is the biggest place to get your NFTs and their APIs for the smart contracts are nowhere near security aware. So just viewing an NFT could uh, leak your IP address and things like that. So Oh nice. Yeah. This is nascent technology and it's it's a you know there's no S in NFT to to coin a phrase from IoT. <laughs> it's it's very much the wild west. Uh, a company called Civicom, who do an awful lot of um, video conferencing, uh, basically they forgot to put a password on their Amazon bucket. And so they basically were publishing to the world unintentionally 100,000 videos of private video conferences. So if you work for an organization that uses Civicom and you discussed sensitive information on one of those calls, be aware that it may not be nearly as um, secure as you think. Um, there is a new piece of Mac malware called Dazzle Spy, which is being used in the wild. And I had a note to myself saying to read up on this to make sure I knew what I was talking about. And I forgot <laughs> to do that. So link in show notes to uh, Intego. Everyone else to read. <laughs> yeah, Mac security blog. Okay. Um, meanwhile, what I did get around to, oh, I knew I duplicated it somewhere. Uh, yeah, so we have the story here about Apple releasing their... Um, safety document and then there's a link to Ken did a great job reading through it if you prefer to read Ken's summary of it so I will update the show notes to move the Ken link up to the top and delete the duplication there oh and another one I duplicated oh he did that on the checklist he did it on the checklist it was was a good episode actually Uh, well they're they're quite often good I shouldn't sound surprised (laughs) (laughs) and then I've just duplicated the flock story as well so delete that from the show notes Uh, Facebook have rolled out end-to-end encryption on their various chat platforms. So that is, in my opinion, a good news story. I know there are some law enforcement agencies losing their hair, but really, I'm sorry, safety first. And then two VPNs have just gotten a little bit better in different ways. Um, So Mozilla's VPN now allows you to have different VPN VPN exit nodes for different containers within Firefox. So Firefox has this concept where you could basically make Firefox pretend to be two different browsers. So there's no sharing of cookies. So you can have like a Facebook container and then everything else you do doesn't think Facebook is logged in because you've logged Facebook in at the container. Oh, that's cool. It's very cool. So now if you use 
Mozilla's VPN, the container will also have a separate IP address through the VPN. So you will really appear to be two different people. Oh, that's awesome. It's a fantastic feature. I really like that. Very clever. And then the Google One VPN is now available uh, for iOS. So if you're if you're paying for a Google One account, which gives you apparently better Google stuff, you can now use their VPN on your iPhone slash iPad as well. So that's also a positive uh, development. And finally, um, WhatsApp uh, issued EU ultimatum over data use. Basically, the European Commission are unhappy with how WhatsApp is sharing data and they have been told, I think it's 28 days to come back with a good answer to the commission. So I've put a pin in that story because this is going to develop into a something, but I'm not sure what the something is yet. So that is one to watch. Let's see what happens there. Moving on then to top tips. Um, It was International Data Privacy Day um, and the guys at Naked Security did a really human-friendly post. There's nothing here that listeners to this segment don't know already, but it's really nicely written up in a very human-friendly way, so it's the perfect link for sharing with your friends and family. So that's why it's in the show notes. I like the title, Happy Data Privacy Day, and we really do mean happy, and it's even got a smiley face. It does, and they're not. it's not difficult. It's not rocket science, but it's just a really nice little thing that you can share with people and just make life a little bit better. You know, it's, yeah. it's, you know do the little things. Um, an interesting story that came up, uh, the Mac Observer guys were great to point this out. So there was a lot of news that Tim Cook's house had been blurred on Apple Maps because unfortunately he's being stalked at the moment, which is not good. And a lot of the reporting was sort of along the lines of, jizz, it must be great to be the CEO of Apple. You can get your house blurred. Turns out everyone can get their house blurred on both Apple Maps and Google Maps. You literally just have to ask. And I did I did not know that. Neither did I. I. I, do, I do find it humorous. I, I heard a joke recently, a comedian I saw on, on TikTok talking about how uh, the the first thing you do when you get uh, when you saw satellite maps of the globe is uh, you've got this the entire world to explore and what is the first thing you do you look at your own house honey honey look here our car was parked in front <laughs> yeah and you try to figure out when it was based on whether or not the you know the extension was built on the house or the driveway was paved or you know was it you can literally it go anywhere in the world and you go to your own house <laughs> yeah guilty as charged completely <laughs> absolutely. So, yeah, and you can do it on both services, and it's quite straightforward. There's just a web form to fill in. So, link, basically, Mac Observer have written it up and put in the various links. So, I thought that was worth sharing. So, I have bookmarked it on my For Future Reference. I hope I never need this tag yeah. in pocket. And then, this, this, the last story here is not earth-shattering news, but it's a really good reminder that you always, always, always need to check the actual address bar at the moment in time you're filling in a username and password. In the same mm. way that when you're driving and you put on your left turn signal, you should look in your left rear view mirror. When you type in a password, you should look at the address bar. Those should be reflexes. And the reason I say that is because the bad guys love hijacking trust. So if they can find a way to make a website you trust to do a redirect, They'll love it because the link you see, whether you pasted it into your browser or clicked it in an email and did the hover thing to make sure it went where you thought it went, the link you see is to somewhere like LinkedIn. But that's Mm. not where you stay. You're redirected through LinkedIn to the bad guys. Okay. 
and if you then were to take the time to look up at the address bar, you'd see where you'd landed. But a lot of people won't go that last step. And unfortunately, LinkedIn has a feature where companies can buy redirects. Literally, they can buy a LinkedIn address that is a redirect to their own website. And the idea is literally that companies can buy credibility. But that's being massively abused because it's not expensive to buy one of these Mm. links. So, of course, the bad guys are doing it. So, just because the link starts with something like LinkedIn, check where you landed. Not where you set off to because you have redirects. Check where you arrived at the moment in time you do the type. Okay. Okay. Good point. Uh, Excellent explainers, then. Um, We know that Thread and Matter are on the way. And the guys at iMore have just updated their everything you need to know about Thread article. It has become extremely long. But it's really good. Uh, I read it all today. Uh, I literally read every sentence because I am very keen to get more into home automation and I want to make absolutely sure I buy nothing that isn't compatible with Thread, at least in the future. So I I, I devoured this article. It's very well written. Uh, And then interesting insights. I have two podcasts to recommend to people here. The first is an interview Rene Ritchie did for for International Privacy Day again uh, with Apple's privacy chief it was a half hour conversation and it was about the fact that in apple privacy isn't an afterthought the privacy team are sitting in in the early stages of product development which is why you're able to have features and security together because it's Mm -hmm. not an afterthought they're not in competition it's not an adversarial relationship. It's a cooperative relationship. It's part of the structure, right? It's, it's like doing it's like doing accessibility as part of the foundation, not trying to tack it on top. Exactly. And hearing him describe how Apple work, you understand how it's possible for Apple to deliver privacy conscious good products. I, yeah. I really enjoyed listening to it, and it it gave me a lot of confidence in the process at Apple. So I thought that was a good so, interview. Uh, You've got a little headphone there. It's actually a video on the iMore site, right? Or did you get it through a podcast? I got it through a podcast. Uh, okay. Rene does all of his stuff as a traditional podcast as, and as a YouTube channel and as a blog post. So I did can... not know he did it as a podcast. Okay, yes. good to know. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I hate YouTube. Uh, I fundamentally object. <laughs> I'm sorry, I find, that, I find that abhorrent that I have to pay to have picture-in-picture, which is the standard iOS API. They are charging for Apple's work, and it makes me so angry. I will avoid them at all costs. So I, I, don't I listen hate to it. I just don't get into it. Yeah. I go in and I watch something, and then I leave. Yeah, it's I don't know. I, some things rub me up the wrong way way more than they should. Like it's just I don't know. It's just a thing. <laughs> it's just they've done something. They've triggered something deep inside me, and I'm just fed up. So what what is the podcast? Is it? The it is Rene Ritchie's. Po- it's just the Rene Ritchie podcast. So literally, just for oh, Rene okay. Ritchie, and the icon is two oars, one backwards and one forwards. Okay, it's literally the audio from the video. Okay, great. Um, and then the other one is another recommendation from the EFF. Have a podcast called How to Fix the Internet, which I have really been enjoying since they launched it last year. But they just released a very special episode, which is nothing like their other episodes, frankly. Do you remember in the early days of podcasting, it all, it all, we nearly lost it all because of a patent troll going after yes. all of the podcasts. This is the story of how it happened and how they beat the troll, told by the people who were there. And I knew about it in the back of my mind, but to hear it in the first person was fascinating. 
So I, I thoroughly enjoyed that uh, episode of how to, how to Fix the Internet. And then the last one is very nerdy. If you're interested in the technical weeds about this whole Web3 mumbo-jumbo, Moxie Marlinspike, the guy who literally wrote Signal, did a little bit of a dive into all of this Web3 stuff and into all of these NFTs and stuff. And I w- he doesn't think it may not have a bright future, but the path it's on is wrong. If things Ooh. continue as they are, Web3 is a disaster. And I learned a lot. I thought, I understood the aspirations and I assumed the technology was in line with the aspirations. They are, it is not. It, it is absolutely positively not. The current implementation of the concepts is garbage. Uh, <laughs> I, I was so enlightened. Again, a long, I think it was, I basically, my entire walk was reading two articles today. It was this article from Moxie and the one on Thread. Like, my entire <laughs> one hour walk was those two articles. Um, you read while you walk. Yeah, but only on one route where it's all along footpaths with no cars that I know so well that I know where every tree route is. I, I, okay. I think I could do it blindfolded. <laughs> okay. Uh, That's the only route I do it on, which is my Saturday morning route because I have to prepare for show notes. Here you go. Okay, and then we're on to palate cleanser. No, yes, we are. I have one palate cleanser because I just enjoyed it so much. I loved the instantaneous reaction when William Shatner came down from space. Oh, yeah. He was clearly awestruck. And it was wonderful to see. He sat down for an interview with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. This was recorded like only a week or two ago. So he's had time to digest Mm. and time to think about it. And so this is an hour long conversation, which covers more than just the space flight. But it is a lot about the space flight. It's a wonderful interview with Chatner. Um, he, he comes across extremely human and I, I just enjoyed every minute of it and I just thought it was worth sharing. Oh, I'll have to check that out. I think Steve listens to Star Talk Radio. Yeah. It's in my rotation. Some of them, I'll be honest, I listen to the first 10 minutes and go, yeah, not for me. Mostly the sport ones, if I'm honest. <laughs> okay. But when he's good, yeah, he's Yeah, that very, was the thing good. that bothered me is it's kind of uneven. You think Star Talk Radio would be about like science-y stuff. It's the science of sport, but... If you don't care about the sport, the science is nowhere near as interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this was a lot of stuff. I thought it was really fun. And thanks for letting me do a deep dive. That was was very exciting. Thank you for doing it. It was very relieving. to fill. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, folks, you you know how I'm going to end this. Until next time, remember to stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do you know that you can email me anytime you want and I'll probably write back to you? You can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. If you have a question, suggestion, send it on over. Even a review, that's even better. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. If you want to join in the conversation, you can join our Slack community at podfeed.com slash Slack, where you can talk to me and all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways, even Kevin. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You can support the show at podfee.com slash Patreon or with a one-time donation at podfee.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfee.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.